Hello and welcome to Podcast by Brodies. My name's David Lee and in this series we'll be discussing the opportunities, trends and challenges that Brodies experts experience when working internationally. Brodies lawyers are globally connected experts in their fields, advising clients across all key sectors from real estate to education, energy, food and drink, life sciences and personal and family matters. Today, we discuss assets across borders, international tax and succession. And I'm joined for this episode by two experts, Nick Marshall, a partner with Brodies, and Lynn Gracie, private client, international tax director with AAB Group. Welcome to you both. Nick, let's just start off with some simple definitions. What do we mean, first of all, by assets abroad? And can you give us some examples? Yes, thank you, David. Yes, I think this question is quite closely linked to why people have assets abroad. Um, the 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 one that we come across commonly is the the holiday villa or the holiday apartment abroad. Uh, commonly, Spain, Portugal, France. Um, but essentially, people own assets abroad, um, all sorts of assets, and the same type of assets that they would own um, in in the UK. So, as I say, we often see the holiday villa, uh, villa or uh, timeshare. Um, but we also see uh, pension pots of different si- differing sizes, um, bank accounts, um, other investments, uh, and that sort of thing. So, so it's a whole wide range of, of assets, really. Um, okay, thanks, Nick. And if you can just give us a bit more detail about the circumstances in which a person might find themselves with assets abroad. Yes, there's a number of a number of different reasons, really, and one might be um, leisure or rec- recreation. So coming back to that idea of the the holiday villa or the or the timeshare abroad, um, work is a very common reason. Um, so people um, tend to to move around more uh, through their employment these days, and so um, they might set up a pension when they're abroad with work, or they might invest in something when they're abroad with work, and then of course they they end up back in the UK and, and they still have all these assets out. In other countries that they haven't they haven't brought back home with them when they've when they've finished on secondment or, or whatever it may be. Um, people inherit assets in different countries, um, and I suppose the other obvious one is is for um, tax purposes or investment purposes. There might be a particular reason, um, and that might be advice led as to why somebody um, should invest or have an asset in a in a different country. And Lynn, if I can come to you, simple question again probably a bit more to it than the, 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 the it sounds. Do individuals have to declare assets abroad? Thanks. Well, um, perhaps surprisingly to many, um, even if someone is resident in the UK, then from a UK tax perspective, the, the answer is actually no. There is no specific tax requirement to formally report overseas assets as such um, to HMRC. Um, but if those same assets generate income or gains, um, for example, on sales or if they've got bank accounts with interest, for example, um, then HMRC in the UK would very much expect a UK resident person to report those same sources on a UK tax return. Um, and exactly what and how much to report will very much depend on the sources involved, plus the individual's tax residence and possibly their UK domicile or non-domicile position, as the case may be. And if an individual didn't declare them, how might HMRC find out about overseas income or assets? Um, Well, that's a very good question. Um, And I think there's probably a lot been said in the press about this, but effectively for the last sort of three to four years, 
HMRC have never had um, as much information about overseas assets as they do have now. Um, the Common Reporting Standard or the CRS agreement that's been reached globally means that there's something like more than 100 jurisdictions who are now effectively transferring financial information about individuals across all different jurisdictions. So HMRC will be sitting in possession, and I know they are of billions now um, of financial records relative to UK resident individuals who hold overseas assets. Um, And so there's a definite um, connection now being made um, and there already has been some action by HMRC in the last couple of years um, issuing, for example, what we call nudge letters to individuals who perhaps have got those overseas income and assets, but they haven't um, declared them for whatever reason. It could be innocent error or not um, on their UK tax returns. Um, so those connections are effectively being made and it is just very, very important to consider the reporting aspects if you do have these types of income sources overseas. That's a great title, nudge letter. That's mm-hmm. uh, two, two, two very simple sounding words with a lot behind them. Um, just how common is this, Nick? How common is it for people to have uh, assets abroad? Let's say, you know, in, in, in Scotland, you know, do we know how many individuals we're talking about roughly? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty difficult thing to, to quantify. Um, whether it's common, I'm not sure I'd go that far yet, but it's certainly in terms of personal experience and, and anecdotally talking to colleagues and people like Lynn and other advisors, there is more and more of this type of stuff. Um, and and the, the, the international work that I would get involved in wouldn't just be because somebody's sitting in Scotland or England and has an asset UK. It might be the other way around. They might be living in a different country and have an asset in Scotland, or there might just be some otherwise some connection with the UK. So, um, you know, there's there, there's family, um, there's 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 fleeting residents, um, there's a whole host of reasons as to as to why we at Brodies might get involved on a on an international succession piece. So, a difficult thing to quantify, um, but uh, these things do land on my desk fairly, uh, you know, on a weekly basis, certainly, and and that is an increasing trend for sure. And Lynn, what about what about taxation? Taxation set up differently in different countries. How does this impact on individuals who have assets abroad? Yeah, well, it's definitely the case that all jurisdictions have slightly different um, approaches to how sources of income and gains and assets are taxed. Um, plus, um, very inconveniently, the UK fiscal tax year doesn't align to most other countries' tax years as well, which is usually the calendar year. Um, but the, the tax position connected to reporting overseas sources can throw up some unexpected results. Um, offshore investments or assets may be viewed very differently by HMRC according to UK tax rules. For example, um, interest from a mutual bond in the US is tax-free there, but not so in the UK. Um, an overseas pension in or seen as a pension in, in another um, overseas country may not be seen as a pension according to the UK definition by HMRC. So um, I guess a frequent misconception is that many believe if something is taxed overseas as well, then it shouldn't be taxed in the UK. Um, however, in many cases, sources can be subject to tax in both countries. Um, again, another example, we say bank interest, which has perhaps withholding tax paid in the foreign country. But irrespective of that local tax being paid, the interest is still reportable in the UK if you're a UK resident here. 
but you would be able to claim a credit for the foreign tax paid against your UK tax. Um, I guess, you know, there's just fundamental differences in how overseas sources are taxed. Um, so assuming that you're a UK resident and subject to tax on worldwide income as a consequence, this can lead to very different tax exposures, which many may not appreciate necessarily. And what's your broad advice for individuals who find themselves in this kind of situation, you know, particularly those who maybe hold assets in multiple jurisdictions? Um, so if those assets are income producing, then expect to be under an obligation to submit um, and report in all of those um, same jurisdictions. It might not be that you have to, but I suppose the starting point is that there's an expectation almost certainly that you will have to. Um, the associated tax treaties um, in place, double taxation agreements and treaties in place between countries, um, will almost certainly be key in determining who has primary taxing rights relative to various sources. Um, but an approach is to initially assume that the starting point is that the UK can and will tax those sources if you're a resident here. Um, and whilst funds earned or accumulated outside the UK, well, non-resident, if you're not actually resident here, can perhaps be ring-fenced after moving to the UK. Many don't appreciate the income or gains generated from those funds thereafter, becoming after becoming resident here, will be taxable in the UK. And, and that becomes much more complex as well if you're not UK domiciled, because there is some um, tax exemptions or um, if you claim remittance basis, for example, as a non-UK domiciled individual. But perhaps that's a podcast for another time because that's, <laughs> that's quite a conversation to be had. And it's very, I suppose it's very relevant right now. I mean, this is a complex area, Lynn. What if somebody does realise that there is this historic income or assets that should have been declared but weren't? What, you know, what's, what's your advice then? So we, we would always recommend um, that a full review of the tax position is carried out just as quickly as possible um, to readily identify the extent of any undeclared income or gains. Um, and assuming that there are sources to report, again, you know, it could be innocent. It could be just somebody just clearly didn't appreciate that there was a reporting requirement. It's just so important to voluntarily come forward and make a formal application to disclose um, to HMRC just as soon as possible. It is always better to volunteer to disclose in the first instance rather than wait for HMRC to catch up with you um, because then you're just asking for much higher penalties. Um, and also volunteering and coming forward would mean perhaps you're in a position to limit the number of tax years to go back and look at, you might be able to limit them to six or eight years rather than 20, for example. That does depend on the background and the circumstances. Um, and it will potentially reduce um, final penalties on any unpaid tax as well. And when it comes to offshore tax matters, that is incredibly important because the starting point relating to penalties for um, non-declaration of overseas income or gains, for example, is 200% of the tax payable. So it's a very significant penalty. And, it, you know, that HMRC, I suppose, um, to put it bluntly, take a dim view of people not coming forward and not disclosing in the first instance. That's why they've got such a high penalty in the first place. You, you preempted my question there about what the penalties can be. So that 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 just reflects back on your advice is when you find out something, report it quickly. Don't just don't just forget about it and uh, bury your head in the sand. Mm -hmm. I would say um, make sure that you 
and of course I'm, I'm biased because I'm an advisor in this field but really really do seek out professional advice and, and advice from somebody who's got that experience of dealing with these types of matters and the experience of dealing with HMRC as well. Okay and Nick obviously these assets may at some point uh, pass on uh, to a, to another member of, of, of the family or whatever and so what are the considerations in terms of succession uh, regarding uh, assets overseas? Yeah, well, I, I would echo a lot of what um, what Lynn said there about, you know, take advice and take advice at the earliest possible juncture. So try and be proactive and proactively plan rather than reactively plan. And, and of course, when you're talking about succession, um, you, you kind of have to be proactive. So the first thing I would say is have a will or, or wills. Um, and that's a separate conversation as to whether you need a will in each of the countries. You may or may not, depending on those countries, but certainly have a will because, if you die of what we call intestate without a will, then you're effectively leaving it to the law of the land or the lands, if you have an international estate, to de- to determine who benefits, when they benefit, how they benefit, what the tax implications are. And what you're almost certainly doing is making the estate administration much more complicated and therefore much more expensive um, and, and therefore reducing what, what your ultimate heirs are, are going to receive. So I think a lot of people um, make this a big thing in their heads. This is a really complicated thing. I just can't bring myself to take advice. But ultimately, it's for the advisor to cut through the complexity. So what I would say to people is get on and, and get a will in place and, and take a, take advice um, around it because it doesn't have to be a really complicated will, but having a will will almost certainly take you into a better place overnight than, than not having one. And, and in terms of the sort of specifics for people to think to think about maybe in advance of that meeting, um, who are the beneficiaries to be? Who, who does somebody want to benefit from their, their estate? Um, who are the executors going to be? So that's the people who will administer the estate and pass the assets on to the beneficiaries. Um, are trust provisions required? Maybe because the beneficiaries are young or otherwise um, financially immature or, or vulnerable um, or subject to potentially other external influences in their life? Might it be sensible to, to wrap a trust around somebody's inheritance? Um, how a title to the assets held? So if there's property in another country, how is that title actually held? Is there anything within the title which would pass it on to the other um, title owners, irrespective of what a will said? These are the kind of main issues to really think through. Um, and of course, tax position, which is something that is advisor led. But, but what is the tax position going to be on death, and and who's who's going to bear the the, the tax liability? Which of the beneficiaries is, is going to bear that? So, those are the sort of main things to think about. But as I say, it's for the advisors to cut through that complexity. Really, people should just be thinking first and foremost. I need to I need to meet with somebody to to start the ball rolling on on getting that advice. Okay, and you you said that if you have a. a a will in the UK, it'll depend which country you have assets in, whether it has, you know, the the, the the level of significance it has. What about some of those common places where people would have assets and property like Spain or France or whatever? You know, how useful is a UK will in passing on assets in countries like that? Yeah, very is the, is the short answer. I mean, as to whether a, a, a Scottish will or, I mean, we talk about a UK will, and I talk about a UK will as well in an international context, but it's a bit of a misnomer, really, because Scottish law is entirely different to the law of England and Wales. Um, and and um, 
but 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 you know having I, I get asked this question a lot of um you know does a Scottish will or an English will will that govern somebody's worldwide estate and I'm afraid the answer is is it it, it depends um which is such a such a lawyer's answer isn't it it depends but um it will take you into into um a better place and what what we would always advise is that you know obviously we we can only advise on um as a as a dual qualified UK lawyer I can only advise on um the law of England and Wales and, and Scots law um so what we would be looking to do is to put a Scottish will or an English will in place for a client and and try and introduce them to an advisor in 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 the other the other country just to get that holistic planning and to get that peace of mind and it may very well be that the the, the one will the UK will if you like is in of itself sufficient, but we'd want that clarity and that comfort um, wherever those other assets are. And if the assets are in France or Spain, because we're dealing with these assets um, a lot, we have a good sense of actually how that is going to, to play out. And indeed, we have we have pretty good contacts there as well who we deal with on a, on a regular basis. Uh, and what about uh, power of attorney, Nick? You know, is a power of attorney important and does that work internationally? Yeah, so power of attorney is a, is, is, a, is a slightly separate thing from a will. So whereas the will will govern somebody's uh, distribution of somebody's estate when they die, a power of attorney is a, is a lifetime document that allows trusted people, your attorneys, to make financial and or welfare decisions on your behalf should you be um, unable to do so. And that unable to do so covers a whole spectrum of reasons from, you know, not being in the country to sign a document through to, um, you know, um, being in an accident or dementia or something like that, losing the ability to deal with with your own affairs, and I think traditionally, power attorneys thought of as doc, uh, thought of as being a document that only very elderly people need in relation to something like dementia. But the reality is that, um, in my view, power attorney is every bit as important as a will. Um, everybody should have both a will and a power of attorney. And again, it, it doesn't have to be something that's really complicated. It, it, it just is that insurance policy. It's that peace of mind. Get these documents in place, put them in the safe, diarize to review them and, and go on about your lives, but, but certainly have them in place. As to whether they, they, they work internationally, again, I'm afraid it depends on which countries you are talking about. But the, the reality is when you boil it down, the likelihood is that the advice will probably be that if you live in Scotland or the UK, that you have power of attorney here. And if you also have bricks and mortar in another country, that you probably have a power of attorney in that country as well. And and these things can be done, um, you know, put in place without huge cost. As I say, they just give you that that peace of mind. And the final thing I would say is if, if somebody does have multiple powers of attorney, what's really important is that there's a mirroring of a, the attorneys, and B, the terms of the document. So what you don't want is attorneys A, B, C in one country and attorneys D, E, F in another country, and they have a dispute as to you know what, what's in the best interest of, of, of the person. So um, that, that, that we certainly wouldn't recommend. But um, yes, power of attorney, as important as a will in my view, uh, and as I say again, it's about speaking with advisors in other countries and, and getting that holistic holistic planning in place. Yeah. So you've you've done the planning, Nick, but obviously at some point, you know, people people will die. They die owning assets in another country. Is it what you've said before? Depending where those assets are, the procedure will will differ in those different countries. But having these legal documents back in Scotland or the UK will make a big difference to actually how easy it is then to uh, deal with everything. Yeah, absolutely. So the the, the idea is that you 
you you get ahead of that and you proactively plan in all of the countries and that will make the estate administration process um much quicker and 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 uh, less less expensive i mean there there are there are significant differences in terms of how countries um approach these things so um in very general terms the, the common law countries where the laws der- derive from judgment and case law um, will treat the administration of a state very different from from um, civil law countries where, where the law is, is more codified. Um, and whereas in the former, you will have an executor who's responsible for administering the estate and passing it on to the beneficiaries. In the latter jurisdictions, they tend not to recognise that role. So when somebody dies, the assets vest in the heirs. So you know, something like that is just such a fundamental difference as to how you would administer a state, which is why if somebody just if somebody dies without a will in place, you just immediately have this kind of conflicting ideas of of how an estate ought to be administered across the countries. Whereas if you have a will or wills in place, which is already sort of road mapping how all of that is going to play out. Um, as I say, it's, it's much more straightforward. I mean, in very general terms, the state administration looks like ascertaining the um, assets and liabilities of the estate, reporting to the tax authorities, uh, probably obtaining a, a power or an order from the courts to deal with the deceased assets, settling any debts and liabilities of the estate and then passing the net estate on to the beneficiaries. In very general terms, that's what estate administration looks like. Um, but as I say, because no two countries really alike, you kind of want to almost sort of plan ahead in lifetime uh, and not just leave that to your 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 beneficiaries and your executors to deal with. Okay, thanks, Nick. I'll come back to you for some final comments in a moment. But Nick, Lynn, just one other area we can cover. What's your advice to somebody who's buying or selling assets um, in another country? That's another big issue. So I, I would always say never acquire overseas assets without considering the tax position in both the jurisdiction in which the asset is held and where you actually are tax resident um, and definitely seek out appropriate professional advice in each country to ensure that you are really are 100% aware of what this might mean in tax terms, both not just the short term, but the longer term as well. Um, you know, ideally reach out to an agent who is able, as Nick suggested, um, that you can offer that sort of global, delivering the global and holistic tax position across all the jurisdictions involved. Um, you know, we're a member of a global network as well. So that works really well in terms of ensuring that we get um, if you like the tax advice from the people with the feet on the ground in the jurisdictions themselves and we can join that up with the UK piece as well and clients really do appreciate that because then they get the whole um, uh, the holistic perspective which is just so important because what is tax efficient in one country can be very tax nasty in another um, so I mean it's not just as Nick suggested advice connected to the income generated in your lifetime but also what will happen in the event of your death to these assets and the income that goes along with that um, and future wishes to gift those assets to your family which you know most people hold that very close to their heart so it's you know why wouldn't you get that advice when you're investing perhaps significant sums um, in assets overseas it really is just so important to get um, knowledge is power as they say it's just so important to understand what it really means for you and your potentially your future family as well okay thanks both i'll just ask you both for a kind of final summary now this is clearly a complex area um particularly if you're holding assets across multiple jurisdictions so what's what's your final bit of advice nick and then lynn 
to anyone who finds themselves in in this position with assets abroad and with the potential complexities of dealing with that? Yeah, I would just say take, take advice um, at the earliest juncture and take advice from somebody who has a, a track record of, of advising in, in these, in these matters. Um, it's, it, some of it can be quite, quite niche international planning. Um, and the earlier the advice is sought, as I say, um, the better. I mean, I, I fully appreciate nobody particularly likes thinking about, um, their own, uh, mortality or incapacity, uh, let alone paying a lawyer to, to, to think about it. Um, but really, it doesn't have to be this really complicated, drawn-out um, process. It, it can be pretty straightforward. And, and the likelihood is the planning that's put in place in life is 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 going to make um, everything um, much, much easier um, down the line. Um, and, and the one other thing, in conjunction with putting the right documents in place, the will and the power of attorney and planning, the other thing to think about in life is is consolidation. So as, as I say, quite often we see clients who have worked all around the world and have a little pension pot in the, you know each of the countries where where they've worked. And actually, the answer might just be consolidating assets, subject to you know taking the, the requisite tax advice from 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 Lynn and her colleagues um, and affordability and that sort of thing. Actually, does somebody need does somebody needs assets in five or six countries? Might the answer just be actually to consolidate everything down and, and really simplify their affairs? Okay, Lynn, final word from you. Yeah, I agree with everything that's just been said. Absolutely, um, I suppose um, uh, taking advice is is absolutely top of the list there, um, and and the, and appropriate advice, but. I think um, there's a background here in terms of um, reporting from a tax perspective on offshore assets. And that is that, you know, the offshore tax gap is now clearly a priority for the UK government and HMRC. Um, They're set to release an estimate of what that offshore tax gap might be um, next year, 2023. Um, Given the UK's current economic situation as a clear political motivation, if you like, to crack down any perceived offshore tax evasion. So, you know, our advice is just be very careful, get the right advice, make sure that you're reporting correctly. It's absolutely imperative um, and, and get the advice from experienced professionals. Great stuff. Thanks very much, Lynn and Nick. Um, who better to have as a guest to discuss assets across borders or AAB than someone from AAB? So thank you to Lynn. Uh, thank you to Nick uh, for being part of Podcast by Brodies. Uh, in Podcast by Brodies, some of the country's leading lawyers and special guests share their enlightened thinking about the issues and developments impacting the legal sector and what that means for organisations, businesses and individuals across the various sectors of UK economy and society. If you'd like to hear more, you can subscribe to Podcast by Brodies on all your favourite podcast platforms. And for more information and insights, please visit www.brodies.com.